If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke's Gospel, if you would. Chapter 19, and as you're turning to Luke 19, if you need a Bible, just hold your hand up. The gentlemen are coming up the aisles, and they have some Bibles there. And why don't we stand together as we turn to Luke 19 out of respect for the Word of God. And let me read our text for Bible study. Luke 19, beginning in verse 46, excuse me, verse 45 is where we left off last week in our study. Luke 19, verse 45, regarding Jesus, says, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but when the chief priests, the scribes and leaders of the people, sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, then he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, then all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus answered, Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, we lift the word of God before you this morning believing by faith that you breathed it out by your spirit and have given it to us that you might use it to write your will on the fleshly tablet of our heart. So Lord, take away any hardness, any callousness, anything within us that would keep our heart from being like soft clay that you might inscribe your word and your will personally for us. Give us an ear to hear what your spirit wants to say to this part of your church this morning. Bless your word by your spirit's ministry, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, obviously in this passage, we see Jesus moving now into the temple area and beginning to do some things among the temple. And it kind of brings to bear the evaluation of when Jesus is working among the temple of God and among where the people of God gather to worship, uh, what really should be taking place? Because the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever that he doesn't change. And we take note as here, Jesus in the flesh is in the temple precincts that a couple of things are happening. Uh, For pretty obvious evidence, Jesus is disrupting the lives of people. You take note of that in the first part of what we read there, that Jesus is just radically disrupting people's lives. And quite honestly, I think when the living presence of Jesus is at work among the people of God and the house of God, I think people's lives should be getting disrupted. 
I hope the Lord's disrupting my life and that he's at work and, and he's doing things among us and, and in us that we're not just coming and just kind of sitting and having a social gathering and saying, I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay, okay, let's go out again today. You know, and just kind of whatever, we come and we do our thing and, and, and we, we gather and, and nothing happens within us and nothing happens among us. That would sure be kind of a, a sad testimony if the presence of the Lord is, is really among us. I would hope there's something happening and that he's disturbing by his authority and his ministry some things in our lives and, and he's removing things that shouldn't be there and he's inserting things and depositing things that should like the teaching of the word of God as we see him teaching in the temple and ministering to people and, and demonstrating his authority over people's lives. And I hope that the Lord would be doing the same things among us. Now remember, as we're studying these events that we're looking at from now and really to the end of Luke's gospel, we're now in the last week of the life of Jesus Christ upon this earth. We just looked at our study last week, which what we often call Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Jesus' resurrection. And we saw that on that Sunday, in perfect fulfillment the Scripture, Jesus entered into Jerusalem, remember, and he was presenting himself purposely and publicly to the people of Israel in that day as their predicted and promised Messiah from the Old Testament Scriptures, the one who had come to save people as God's Messiah and Deliverer, but not to save them from the political powers of Rome, but to save them from the power of sin and to free them from slavery to sin in their personal lives. And as Jesus was entering into the city, remember, everyone was loudly celebrating. And then it tells us all of a sudden, as everyone else is loudly celebrating, it says that Jesus starts sobbing. He starts audibly weeping out loud and crying as he looks over the city of Jerusalem, realizing that they would reject him as their Messiah and as their deliverer. And the consequences that would come upon their lives personally and corporately because of their rejection of the visitation of God into their lives which led Jesus as he was weeping to say there in 19 verse 42 if you had known even you especially in this your day the things that would make for your peace but now they're hidden from your eyes and the days will come upon you when your enemies build an embankment around you surround you and close you on every side and he says and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another Again, the reason, because Jesus said he was weeping, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is weeping over the people because they didn't realize what the Lord was doing in their midst and they were missing a window of spiritual and eternal opportunity that God was orchestrating for their best. Well, we now come to what would be Monday, the next day of this last week of Jesus' ministry. And what do we see the Lord up to next? Well, it goes on to tell us there in verse 45 that he went into the temple, this would now be Monday, and he began to drive out those who bought and sold, saying, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So notice Jesus, with tremendous zeal and tremendous authority now, enters into the temple and he begins to radically, radically cleanse from the temple of God, what does not belong within it. 
Interesting, if you want to jot in your notes there, Matthew 21 or Mark chapter 11, there we get a fuller account, an expanded description of this exact same event. Let me read to you from Mark's account in Mark 11, verse 15 and 16. It says, Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. See, what was happening was this in that day. The temple of God and the temple precincts had moved away from being a reverent location where people just gathered to worship God, where people would come away from the world and all of its activities, and they would come to a quiet place with reverent hearts and desire to just sincerely seek God to just worship God and to spend time in His presence and to seek the Lord and give praise to Him and receive the ministry of His Spirit. Instead, the temple had started to become like a business expo, like a social bazaar, or or maybe even we could go so far to say it's kind of like a commercialized shopping mall. And Jesus now comes in and sees what's happening. Now remember, as pilgrims traveled to Jerusalem, where the temple was, As they went up to Jerusalem, they were required, the worshipers, to bring their own animal to be used as their sacrifice upon the altar of God as a part of their worship. Now that sacrifice they brought in worship to God to be placed upon the altar also had to be acceptable. They couldn't just bring God their leftovers as many times we try and do. They had to bring to God an animal without blemish, without defect, And as they brought this, the priests, the religious leaders, would inspect this animal as it came to make sure it was an acceptable offering to be put on the altar in worship before God. And what began to happen was in the outer court of the temple precincts, little shops and vending areas began to be set up over time where worshipers could just purchase that animal instead right there on site at the temple grounds when they got there. And of course, these doves and sheep that would be sold, you know as well, were presented with probably a sign that said something like this. Certified, pre-approved by the board of priestly inspection, animals to be used in sacrifice. Guaranteed is acceptable to God. The board of priests has pre-inspected these and they are available for you to purchase. Now, the agenda behind the whole thing was twofold. First of all, it provided convenience because it made it as easy as possible for those who were coming to worship God. It was a service to make worship as comfortable and as convenient as possible for you when you come to worship God. Now, of course, you had to buy the animal at a higher price, but nonetheless, our flesh likes convenient spiritual devotion. The flesh loves that. Whatever is the most convenient, that's what I want in my spiritual devotion to God. And this made it very convenient for worshipers. Anything we can do to make it more convenient and comfortable, that is the top priority and we are in it for you as you come to the temple of God. And of course, the priests and the religious leaders became vendors who capitalized us and just made a profit on this very thing as worshipers were coming to the house of God. The other part of the agenda behind this is they were simply preying on the sincere, naive spirit of the worshipers who were coming. See, as people would come to the temple, they would bring their animal, they'd have a totally pure heart, and they really just wanted to worship God. 
There were people were flooding the temples who they were just sincerely naive and, and just wanted to genuinely worship God and, and praise the Lord and come and be in His presence. And, and the religious leaders, as they would inspect the animals, they could always find some defect. They could always ultimately find some blemish. And then, of course, the worshiper would feel rather disheartened and then their sincere, naive condition the religious leaders or the priests would say, hey, don't, don't worry. We know you want to be right with God. And we know you really want to worship and no concerns right over here. We have a booth with pre-certified, pre-approved, priestly inspected animals. And we've put that there for you so that you don't have to miss out on the opportunity to worship God. Of course, the prices were jacked through the roof in comparison to what you could bring an animal from from somewhere else if you were to pick it up along the way or bring it from the farm area where you lived. See, it was it was the old, if I could use the illustration, it was the old like ballpark marketing mentality. We get you in and then once we get you in the stadium and you're hungry, it's $10 for a hot dog. And, and that's what was going on in the midst of the temple precincts in that day. People were actually, can you believe it? I'm going to say it. People were actually using the things of God to make money off people. It says as well that there were money changers. They had to give their offering in the temple shekel. And there were multiple currencies in operation in that day. So they had money changers in the area as well. Of course, they charged extremely high rates to exchange your money into the shekel so that you could give your offering to the temple. The point is this. The activities in the temple had become corrupt in that day. And crooks had, in essence, kind of just set up shop. And those coming to worship the Lord were being used and they were being ripped off. And what is even sad and worse is much of the priestly ministry and the religious leaders were the ones who were behind the whole business agenda. And this was all being done under the spiritual covering of coming to the house of the Lord. They were making a profit off of people coming to worship the Lord. And the temple area, which was intended to be a sincere place of reverent worship, had become commercialized and like a social bazaar with shops and businesses. And Jesus now witnesses, notice what's happening in his father's house. And he notices also what is happening to those people who are coming in sincerity just wanting to worship God. And his response, I think it's fair to say, is rather strong. His response was rather severe. As Jesus witnessed what was happening, he angrily drives out all of this inappropriate activity. And with tremendous authority, he literally, in some translations render it that way, he says he begins to throw out of the temple, those who are propagating such inappropriate things, as well as those who are participating in it as well. And can I just say, maybe you don't agree, I absolutely love this picture of Jesus. Because this is God in the flesh. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. And I love this because there's nothing new under the sun. And we see the same unfortunate things happening today in the circles of religion and among the so-called church and the Christian banner. And there are crooks and people doing things and activities and shenanigans going on. And you know what? I love this because it shows me this has how God feels about it. So when I get bugged about it and you get bugged about it, I can know, you know what? Praise the Lord because I see how God feels about it too. 
And notice here, this is Jesus, God in the flesh. This is total love, and this is completely righteous in his attitude and his behavior. And imagine what this must have been like. We read the scene, but can you picture? Here's the temple, and the priests, and the whole religious system, and all that, and you have all these things going on, and it says that Jesus walks in, and he begins to forcefully drive out those who bought and sold, and it says he starts overturning table. And you just picture what that is. He walks in, he's not just saying, uh, excuse me, would you consider not doing this to the people anymore? I really don't agree with it. He goes in and it says he starts driving people out. And just imagine, he's boom, and he's flipping over tables and get out of here. Get this out of here. Shows me Jesus wasn't this wimpy, effeminate kind of person we often, unfortunately, Jesus was a man's man. It doesn't say anybody was stopping him in the whole temple. He's flipping tables and chasing people away. I, I love how Mark's account tells us as well. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise. through. He wouldn't allow them. So what's that mean? As he's chasing people out, people are trying to come back in. The company's going, get out of here. You know, get out of here. And I mean, he literally just takes complete control. And he radically starts to cleanse these unhealthy things. And then in verse 46, it says that he quotes... It is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So he quotes from Isaiah 56 and from Jeremiah chapter 7 using scripture, good principle here, using scripture as the basis for his decisions and his actions and his speech and his behavior. Now when we're going to do things sometimes that may even seem a little bit radical, you better make sure you have scripture as a basis for what you're doing. And just don't respond in, in impulsive action sometimes. Jesus had a scriptural basis for his reasoning and the ways in which he was responding. And he emphasizes what his house or the temple, notice, was supposed to be and what it was not supposed to be. What it was supposed to be, Jesus says, according to God's word, his father's house was supposed to be, he says, a house of prayer. That is an intimate gathering place where the family, a house, where the family of God's children can come together and can seek God and spend time together with Him in His presence. Notice, Jesus says, the Bible tells us, the corporate gathering place of God's people should be a house of prayer. Now, what is prayer? You can simplify. Prayer is communication with God. Those three words define what prayer, in essence, is. It's communication with God. So the house of God should be a place where God is saying things to his people and where we are in response saying things back to God, whether it's in song or it's in prayers, that there is a communication happening between God and his people in a very intimate family way. And that should be the primary activity in God's house. People sincerely having a spiritual encounter with the Lord, meeting together with the Lord, not just having a meeting. Because a lot of times, churches can just have a meeting. Meeting with the Lord. Meeting with Him, letting Him speak to us and us speaking to Him in prayer and encountering Him in fellowship. So that's what the house of God is supposed to be. And Jesus also shows us here, notice, that the danger is, is that people can at times make God's house and its purposes and activities into something it is not supposed to be. That's what had happened in this day. 
In this day, people had made the house of God, Jesus says from Jeremiah 7, a den of thieves. What's a den of thieves? Well, a den of thieves is a term that describes a gathering place for people who rob and steal to kind of hide out and try not to get caught in what they're doing. A den of thieves. It's a place where thieves gather and they try and do it in such a way where they don't get caught for the ripping off and the robbing and the stealing they're doing from other people around them. See, people in many ways can corrupt the activities and purposes of God's house. It can happen in many different forms and fashions. People with the wrong agenda can set up shop in the courts of God and can begin over time to start using people who come to worship as a personal commodity for their own agenda to just get out of them whatever they can get out of them. And with a wrong heart and a wrong motivation, they begin to mislead and manipulate people in an effort to get what they can out of them and it's all for their own benefits. And let me just say, bringing this over to the culture and generation that we live in, sometimes I think Jesus still needs to do a little bit of house cleaning even among the church. I think at times Jesus among his church, because he's Lord of the temple, it's he and his father's house, and that means what happens in the house of God must be acceptable to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And what is not acceptable, he has every right and reason to radically remove it from us. And he should. He should. And there are times and there are occasions when there are things happening that are not in accordance with Jesus' desire. There are things that are happening among the house of God that are not in line with the Father's will. And Jesus may come at times with his authority and with his angry disapproval and begin a process to seek to drive out practices and activities and even people who are propagating such things and participating in such things, and he does such in his loving wisdom to clean house for his glory and for the benefit of the people who are coming to sincerely worship God. I know it may sound strong to say it, and you don't have to agree with it, but I think if need be, Jesus has no problem throwing people out of the house of God if they are detrimental and dangerous to the work of God and the people of God who are sincerely gathering to worship. And may zeal, when it's appropriate, may zeal for the Lord's house consume us as well in such a way where we might recognize that Jesus is working and he may need to clean house at times among his house in the church, even in our present generation. And let's also realize too, the Bible teaches as Christians that we are the temple, Right? We are the temple of God ourselves. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, sometimes the Lord sees things within our lives, things that are present in our personal temple that don't belong there, wrong and unhealthy things that are in our lives, maybe we've allowed in our lives to set up residence, things we're participating in that are defiling us in our personal temple, things that are robbing us and ripping us off from God's best and from the fullness of relationship with God and everything that he would want to do in and through our lives. And sometimes Jesus loves us enough to exercise his authority over our lives and to come in and start overturning tables in our own personal lives. And sometimes he will come in and forcefully start driving out of us things that just don't belong or things that he realizes this is ripping you off. And this is robbing you from God's best. And because I love you, the Bible says, blows that hurt cleanse away evil, Proverbs says. 
And I'm thankful that Jesus is passionate enough and not passive in my life to say, you know what, if I need to come in and through circumstances or someone else saying something to you, or whatever, and he uses all kinds of things and just start overturning some tables in your life to get some things out of your life and to drive things out of you that are hindering and hurting you and your relationship with me, the, the Lord may do that. Sometimes he has to come in and do a little house cleaning in our lives. And maybe the Lord's doing that in your life right now. Hey, take heart. That's a good thing. It's not pleasant, I agree, but it's a good thing. And it's done because he loves us and has our best interests. What's interesting too is this is the second time that Jesus goes in and radically cleanses the temple in Jerusalem like this. It tells us in John chapter 2 that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he did the exact same thing as you see him doing now in the very last week of his ministry. So three years prior to this, Jesus had gone in the temple and done something very similar to this. John records for us in his account. And now, take note, apparently sometimes the Lord has to do a house cleaning more than once. Sometimes things get driven out of our lives by the Lord only to come back and set residence back up in our lives again. Have you ever noticed that personally? You know, the Lord will drive something out of your life and then through maybe some concessions and compromises or maybe a little backsliding or a different season in our relationship with the Lord, things come back and they start setting up residence again. Old habits, bad attitudes, an unforgiving spirit again. And, 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 and things come back and they start setting residence back up in us again. And I am thankful that though things come back and set up residence, that Jesus is willing to keep doing house cleaning as often as it's necessary. And he'll do it periodically. Again, I'm glad that the Lord does not just roll over in kind of a peaceful tolerance. Oh, well, I guess this will just forever be a struggle for you, Tony. I'm glad that he doesn't do that. I'm glad that he loves me enough that he takes action to remove things as often as need be in our lives. And can I just say this? I wonder, I really do. I wonder if there may not be a greater measure of personal holiness in our lives and less shenanigans in some churches if we would recognize that this too is a part of the ministry of Jesus sometimes. That he'll do some radical house cleaning and we shouldn't resist him when he does it. We should cooperate with it because it's part of his ministry. And I wonder if I might and you might experience more personal holiness and there might be less shenanigans. I hope that's not a bad word. I didn't check it. In churches, if we realize sometimes Jesus house cleans. It's what he does. But it's a good thing. I've seen the Lord do it in lives. I've seen the Lord do it in, in, in fellowships I've been a part of and other fellowships. And you know what? When it's submitted to, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for the benefit of the kingdom of God and those who are coming to worship him. We'll look at verse 47. It says, And as Jesus was there, teaching daily in the temple, again, notice Jesus removes what's wrong to always replace it with what is right and what should be happening. So Jesus cleanses the temple and the next day he comes in and he starts teaching people the word of God. So he always takes away what's wrong so that he can replace it with what ought to be there. And the next day he goes back and he starts to teach the word of God to the people in the temple because he knew the truth of God's word is what people needed in order to have the light and the understanding of how to worship God properly. 
and how to live obedient lives and how to live holy lives. So Jesus starts teaching the word of God so that those who are worshipers might be able to offer their lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is our reasonable service. 2 Timothy 3 tells us all scripture given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And here we see Jesus now come into the temple and notice when Jesus, it seems, directs the activities among his temple that he puts an emphasis upon teaching his people. Jeremiah tells us, I will give you shepherds after my own heart which will feed you with knowledge and understanding to know God, to understand how to worship God and how to live for God in a healthy way that we might hear from God and then respond to God as we depart from the temple and live in the world all week long. And I pray, my heart's desire, you should too, that our fellowship would always be a gathering place where Jesus is teaching people and the people are making progress in their spiritual understanding of God and how to live for him. And that our personal lives would, on occasion, have Jesus come through and, and maybe drive out some of the things that have consumed or distracted us from the word of God personally that he might again begin to give us a greater desire to have the scriptures be a priority. So here's Jesus now. Chases everybody out. He starts to teach in the temple. But when the chief priests and the scribes and leaders of the people, it says, sought to destroy him, they were unable to do anything for all the people, notice, were very attentive to him. So as Jesus is now teaching in the temple that he's just cleansed the day prior, Notice the response of the religious leaders. Why? Because he just exposed them. He just exposed them for what they were doing and he finally confronted their error and they're going to lose territory now in their religious sphere of authority and positions that they hold over the people. So they now begin to respond and despise Jesus and it says they actually sought to destroy him. It means they wanted to kill him. They wanted to completely do whatever they could to get rid of him as quickly as possible to snuff him out and to remove him before he continued to flush them out and reveal more of what they were really like and that people would see that. Isn't it interesting in the place where people ought to be worshiping God and loving people, something's really wrong in paradise when instead you want to push out God and get rid of people. <laughs> and, and this was the case of the religious leaders. They're thinking about destroying Jesus. Why? Because the presence of Jesus and the word of God was light that was shining into their darkness and it was convicting them. And because it was convicting them, they rather severely respond and it says they're trying to push away and get rid of the Lord. Well, verse 47, as this is happening, the religious leaders, it says, are in a dilemma because they wanted to destroy him, but they were unable, it says. Why? For all the people were very attentive to hear him. So they want to maintain their position. They don't want to give up their role, but they can't act directly and just destroy him. So they have to now kind of find a little more subtle way, a sneaky approach, as we'll see they do in the days ahead, to get rid of Jesus so they can hang on to their role there. But they have to find another approach to accomplish this because they don't want to lose the ground of where they're at there. Now that being said, what a beautiful statement, however about how the people's attitude in the temple was towards Jesus. Do you see what it says in the end of verse 48? It says they were very attentive to hear Jesus. I love that statement. I underlined it in my Bible. All the people were very attentive to hear him. It indicates people were eager to hear Jesus. They were enthusiastic. They wanted to hear the word of the Lord. 
the people who were there, they weren't just enduring the word of the Lord. They were eager for the word of the Lord. They really wanted to hear what Jesus was going to say to them. They really wanted to hear what God would speak into their lives. And again, can I say by way of application, I pray that would be my condition and our condition as the people of God, that we would be attentive to want to hear Jesus. That we wouldn't come and endure the word of God, but that we would come eager, anticipating, man, I'm a Lord, I'm attentive. Lord, what do you want to say to me? What do you want to tell me? Something you want to correct in my life? Do you want to convict me of something? Do you want to instruct me about something? Do you want to encourage me, Lord, about something? Or reassure me or confirm and, and just attentive to hear whatever the Lord's going to say. Such a beautiful attitude of the people in the temple that day. Verse 20 says, Now it happened on one of those days, as he's there teaching, as he taught the people in the temple, so he's teaching, as well as, notice, preaching the gospel, sharing with the unsaved, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, they now confront him. And they spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? So at this point, the religious leaders now resort to direct confrontation. They say, That's it. We've got to challenge this guy. We've got to call him out. We have to figure out a way to destroy him somehow. Let's try and bring him down publicly. Let's try and catch him in his words. So they now challenge him publicly and question by what authority they're asking, are you entitled, number one, to act the way you just did and to cleanse our whole temple? And by what authority do you sit here and teach the word of God every day with such confidence and such boldness? It says, by what authority or who gave you this authority? Now, the priests could claim an authority. They could claim the authority of Moses because Moses said that the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron were the ordained priests by God's choice. So they could claim that authority. They had some authority they could claim. The scribes would claim the authority of whatever rabbinic school of thought they came from and whatever rabbi they studied under and they would, hey, that's where our authority is from. We were trained by rabbi so-and-so. But from the people's perspective and more the religious people's perspective in that day, Jesus had no earthly credentials. Think about it. Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't one of the chosen priests. Jesus came from an occupation of carpentry. He was a blue-collar worker in Nazareth, which was a rather rough community to grow up in. And Jesus is not formally trained in any of their rabbinic schools. And Jesus has not been appointed or commissioned by the established religious system in Jerusalem. So they want to know, because it was so obvious, there's some authority behind this guy's life. It's so obvious when he acts or when he speaks that just there's an obvious authority behind him. So who gave you this authority? And where did you get this authority from? And they're trying to challenge him as if, you know, did you take this upon yourself? Did you just, and, and they're questioning where his authority comes from. Well, Jesus does what many rabbis would do in that culture in communication. He now, verse 3, answers their question with a question. He says, I'll ask you one thing and answer me. And this was typical reasoning in that culture. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it? from men here's what Jesus does as they ask this question challenging him the wisdom of God manifold in the flesh right here Jesus says I'll tell you what if you want your answer to your question then you answer this question first the ministry of John the Baptist was it source from heaven was it divine or was it source from man and from the flesh everybody knew the authority and ministry of John the Baptist was powerful 
There's a tremendous authority behind what John did in his day, preaching repentance and baptizing people for the coming of the Lord. And the question they're asking, Jesus now turns and throws a question back in their lap, and he says, I'll give you the answer if you give me the answer to this. He says, the ministry of John the Baptist, was it from God or was it from human endorsement? The source of his ministry, was it divine or was it just of human origin? In other words, did God send John? Did God ordain and empower and commission him and send him forth? And was he God's instrument and God's vessel with the anointing of God upon him? Or was he just a self-proclaimed minister? Was he someone who just took authority to himself and went around in persuasive speech and crafty sayings and throwing his authority around in a way where... Jesus says, what was it? Was his authority from God or, or was he just a man who took authority to himself? Well, verse 5, it says, they reason among themselves. They're talking it out in a huddle. Hmm, if we say from heaven, then he's going to tell us, well, why didn't you believe in him? And if we say from men... Well, then all the people are going to stone us. That don't sound like a good option either, right? For they're persuaded, the people were, that John was a prophet. Now, take notice of something here with me. Instead of answering honestly, what do they do? Instead of answering honestly, they begin to think through what might be the best answer for their own personal Benefit. It says they reason among themselves, they're in a holy huddle here, and they go, hmm, hmm, what might be the best answer to give in this situation for our own personal benefit? Wait a minute. What about what's the right answer? <laughs> what about what's the truth? What's honest? Not what's the best answer to benefit ourselves in this situation, and that's what they're doing here. They're contemplating, mm, boy, if, man, we, we don't, we don't want to just say what's true and, and what might be right or wrong. So let's see, if, if we say that it's from heaven, well, then he's, well, he's going to call us and, and we're going to have to admit that we're wrong. And we don't want to admit that we're wrong. We don't want to admit that we're in error because he'll say, well, then if he's from God, why didn't you believe him? You should believe God, shouldn't you? No, that's, that's not going to work. So they say, well, boy, but by the same token, if we say that he came from men, then we're going to lose approval among the people. Our ratings are going to go down. Our crowds might diminish. And all of a sudden, then we're going to be caught in a spot where we're going to lose the privilege, maybe of our position or the opportunity. So they're in this spot, kind of a catch-22, where it's either answer number one, admit you're wrong and repent and take the consequences, or answer two, expose yourself and lose the approval of people. What do they do? Well, verse 7, it says, they just said, uh, we don't know where it was from. They take the safe political approach. <laughs> we, we're not sure. We're not going to say this, and we're, not gonna, we're just not sure. Again, what are they doing here? Because they have no desire to repent or admit the condition of their heart, and they're afraid to lose the approval of other people, they instead regress into this attitude where they're afraid of facing consequences. So they say, hey, we, we kind of feel caught. We, we just don't know. We just, we're not going to say either. It's kind of not either. We're going to leave it kind of gray and murky. We'll kind of leave it cloudy and, and then we can't get caught either way somehow. Well, Jesus, I love his response, verse 8. He says, okay, then neither am I going to tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus just says, okay, if you can't honestly answer that question, in essence, Jesus says, then you're not ready to hear the truth that I would tell you. 
Your heart's not ready. If you can't answer honestly, he says, then neither am I going to tell you the authority I do this. If they had honestly answered correctly, they would have gotten the answer themselves because they would have realized Jesus and John had the same authority behind their lives. Now, a couple things let me say in conclusion in relation to these events right here. First of all, it's kind of sad, but true. It's kind of sad when people find themselves in a place uh, where they have the opportunity to simply do and say what's right and instead they reason out and think through instead of what is going to be personally most advantageous for them. That's always sad. It's always sad when people are confronted with a situation in their lives of doing and saying the right thing and instead they, they regress back and they go, hmm, let's see. What would be the best thing to say here? Not the right thing. What would be the best thing to say in this situation for my own benefit? Or what would be the best thing to do here or not do here for my benefit? Always sad. Listen, do the right thing. Say the right thing. Let, let things fall, but do the right thing. That's what God honors. And take notice here as well with Jesus, and this is beautiful to me, that Jesus does not feel obligated to fulfill all their demands or answer all their questions. They're confronting Jesus pretty strongly here. They're almost demanding him. Hey, tell us where your authority is from. Jesus doesn't buckle. Jesus doesn't just submit to their demands like a cosmic genie. Jesus won't be pushed around. See, because Jesus is the Lord and he's in charge and he's the authority over all things. And Jesus knows our heart conditions and our agendas and even why we ask certain things sometimes. And I have found that sometimes if we're not ready to hear the truth, then Jesus sometimes will just be silent in regards to some of the things that we're asking him until our hearts are ready to hear the truth so that we might respond to the truth. You know, amazing how when Jesus' enemies come against him, notice they don't prevail. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Listen, if for your stand for Jesus, you've been getting attacked and assaulted, listen, take heart. Where the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard to protect you and assist you. By the same token, let me also say this. If on occasion, the Lord is confronting your error and he's trying to clean house, let him do it. Let's stand together. Let's turn our hearts in a final song of worship. Lord, we commit ourselves to you for this week ahead. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would have free reign to work in our lives in powerful ways. Lord, we want to be submissive to you and sensitive to what you're doing by your spirit. So Lord, would you have your way in me and among us and always, Lord, in this fellowship of believers work by your spirit and receive now our worship and let our hearts be responsive even as we sing for we ask these things in Jesus name amen